And all right. So hi, everybody. Again, this is Jessica with Simply Do It. I'm here with Danny tonight and all of you guys. Um, and as promised, we're going to go over the top 10 most commonly asked questions that we've uh, had from all of our remote investors. So hopefully this will give you a little bit of insight um, on some things that you maybe hadn't thought of before or ways to solve problems that might come up for you in the future. So I'm going to hand it over to Danny. Very good, thanks Jessica. Yeah. Good evening, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining tonight. Getting ready for the holidays. Uh, getting uh, excited with uh, you know with the kind of end of the year. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I always like to kind of kind of check who's on the line and where people are registering from. So we have uh, a very nice, uh, polite Canadian person. Narotam, who joins with with uh, with uh, um, uh, with a camera, thank you for doing it. And Kristen just joined the camera. I appreciate it. Always so so nice to actually see faces. Uh, some of the names I do recognize uh, as active investors of ours. Some of the names I don't, maybe from previous. So thank you. My name is Danny Bitor. I'm here. I'm the one who's kind of waving his hands, just in case you you're not sure who's speaking with. Uh, the uh, you know the boxed part of uh, Zoom. Um, I'm going to introduce myself fully in a few minutes or in a minute or two. Uh, just want to say that um, I don't know if the chat to put questions is open already or not. Uh, it is okay, so feel free yep. to put questions um, as I speak. I'll, I'll try to go um, not quick, but not too take too much time to review everything. You are most welcome to put questions as I speak. We will probably tackle questions after I'm done speaking and we can always reference back to some topic. Also, I wanna say that I like to do those uh, informative educational webinars and not to limit them to specific topics. So if at the end there are other questions that are not necessarily related to tonight's topic, that's okay, not a problem. We can tackle them as well. Um, I am in, you know, Normally we say it's about an hour and we stay longer than an hour and a half to just take questions. Uh, with that said, let me start the, uh, the screen sharing. Give me a second here. Okay, okay. good. Gonna wait just to make sure it's kind of comes up and Jessica will give me thumbs up if it's working. Yep. Thank you. You're good. Um, very good. Thank you. Let's get started. Okay. Uh one uh one kind of uh one thing I want to mention is that on December the 19th, Monday, December 19th, which is about what two weeks from now, 10 or something like two weeks from now, mm -hmm. we have another webinar like this one. It's free. You can register. We're gonna talk. We're gonna tackle the topic of risk and risk mitigation and risk reduction and different aspect of risk when it comes to investing. So the topic of the 19th. If you have not, I see a lot of people have registered to both uh, webinars. Just want to make sure you are aware. <coughs> Excuse me. Another webinar is coming up. All right. Let me introduce myself. My name is Danny. I live in Southern California, Orange County. Jessica and I. Jessica lives not too far from. From um, for me, we're both down here in Orange County. Um, if some of you have a very 
good sense of hearing. You may detect an accent. I'm originally from Israel. Um, I was born and raised in Israel and spent uh, my first 30 years or so in Israel, which means, um, you know, also the Israeli uh, military for three years service. And after getting my engineering degree, I moved to the States with a very clear passion in my mind for me was to pursue real estate investing. So when I came to the States in 2004, I've already done maybe I would say, uh, you know, investment and a half or something like this, uh, something in you know, a one house and other two small investments. And I came to the States and I, I only wanted to do one thing, invest in US real estate. Um, so we moved, my wife and I, in 2004. And since 2004 until now, what I've done for the past almost 20 years, I'm talking 18 years, is actually help invest, invest myself uh, and help others invest in real estate. Over the course of those 18 years, I've probably helped investors to acquire something along the lines of 5,000 uh, investment properties. When I say investment properties, primarily single family homes, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, other things as well. But the, you know, the majority of the work, the investment we are focused on, and my experience is, my comfort zone is the single family home or a smaller residential you know, um, um, dwelling. And I have been investing throughout those 18 years or so in multiple, different multiple US metros from Phoenix to to the different parts of Texas, the, the major ones in Texas and North Carolina and Florida, et cetera. So, you know, the list has about uh, probably more than 35 different U.S. metros. By the way, I live in, in Southern California, but I do not invest in, you know, in California at all. Uh, so all my focus has always been remotely. So 20, 18 years, close to 5,000 properties, probably more than 35 metros, all residential, all done remotely, right? All done remotely. Investing in all my clients are people who invest remotely. Over the years, 18 years, we've gained a lot, I've gained, we've gained a lot of knowledge, information, and we said, okay, how about we take the questions that we keep getting all the time, or like the top 10-ish questions that we're getting all the time, and let's go one by one and try to tackle them. And um, we kind of thought, how do we, you know, which one are the best one or the top one based on the information that we have for my investors? And that's kind of what led to this uh, uh, webinar where the main kind of essence, the main focus is investing, investing in residential and investing remotely. So we're not going to tackle things like commercial investing or other type of investment investment uh, strategies, primarily residential, you know, uh, uh, residential investing. So let's get started. Will or should I say, can the rent cover my expenses? Um, that that comes quite a bit, quite a lot. Uh, the simple answer is it really depends what kind of an investment you're making or investing in. But in many parts of the country, right? We live. Some of you, especially those I saw, a lot of people coming from California, but. Uh, that's not the only place that we have people on the line here. Um, when we live in an expensive, expensive real estate markets, many times the rent purchase price ratio is not is not going to work well. It will be hard to for the rent to cover the expenses, primarily 
because of the high you know uh, mortgage payments right so i live in you know in california rarely if at all can you really buy a house that the rent will cover um you know the expenses assuming a mortgage if we're buying cash it's a whole different it's a whole different thing if you bought something 30 years ago it's a whole different thing i'm talking about today can i go outside in orange county and find a house that um that the rent will cover the expenses it's going to be hard it's going to be hard in many parts of the country so the key ingredient here is the rent purchase price ratio right rent purchase price ratio for those of you who are not fully aware of it um there are parts of this country such as the midwest parts of florida parts of texas that the rent can cover the expenses right and maybe even generate some cash flow and again i'm always assuming we're talking about a mortgage investment not cash investment that's a whole different you know obviously a more uh trivial and simple so the simple answer is yes it can right it's just about finding the right metro the right investment that the rent will cover the expenses and by the way i just want to make sure when i talk about the expenses from my experience or what we're looking at the expenses are normally we're going to have we're going to factor some vacancy property taxes insurance mortgage payments maybe a joy if it exists property management a leasing fee right uh and some repair and maintenance right so all those things I factor in as expenses when I analyze properties. And we have a, a, a whole, we did recently, about a month ago, webinar on how to analyze properties. And we went through the process of analyzing properties and we showed how we you know, uh, evaluate and analyze properties. So the simple answer is, if you may live in an in expensive real estate market, it will be almost impossible or very hard for the rent to cover the expenses, but one of the reasons, maybe the main reason I'm doing it all remotely, it can be done in other parts of the country. A small side note, today, cash flow is even harder, even in those you know, Midwest, South markets around the country because of the interest rate. So it's not impossible. It's just going to be more challenging, but definitely possible. So can you? Yes. Is it going to be in your immediate backyard? Well, it depends where your front yard, you know, what's, your, what's the view on your front yard? Um, Many times when we tackle the type of investment we tackle and we go after, are those are, I would say, I categorize them as the upper middle class, middle middle class, lower middle class type of neighborhoods. Meaning we don't do lower end, bad areas, so to speak, or terrible school rating areas. And we don't do luxury type of areas, right? We like the, the middle class, uh, the middle class America type of neighborhoods, communities, suburbs, good schools, etc. When we buy those properties and we analyze them and we uh, um, factor in a mortgage, normally the cash flow is gonna be a small cash flow of maybe 100, 200, $300 a month, you know, at least in the first few years of the property. Many times I get my investors, sometimes I get it from the same investors, clients of mine coming back again and say, you gotta remind me, if the cash flow is $200 a month, and I make, I don't know, $150,000, $200,000 in my salary a year. Why, why am I doing it? What's the point of doing this, you know, if the cash flow is so little, right? The simple answer is if you're going to do it for the cash flow only, in my opinion, you're missing a lot of the 
of the of what real estate can provide you, right? The cash flow is not that exciting. I look at the cash flow that the property is generating like a bonus, like a buffer, like something that can help me if I have to lower the rent or there's more expenses, something that helps me cushion my investment. The way I really look at the, at the cash flow is, or what I call the total ROI is this. I look at three engine, growth engines or vectors. One is the cash flow, right? And for me, cash flow is realistic rent minus all the expenses I outlined earlier and what's, you know, a minute ago and what's left. That's the true cash flow of the property. That means part of the cash flow is, is including the mortgage payments. Mortgage payments include in them principal and interest, right? So that means every month or every year, slowly I pay down or my mortgage or the rent, the rent that comes in pays down the mortgage principal and I build equity. The equity that I'm building uh, or accumulating from the mortgage or the principal reduction is in the walls of the house. It's not in my pocket, in my wallet as we speak or my bank account, but it's there. It's waiting for me. When am I going to see it or when am I going to meet it? When I sell the house or when I refinance, that's there. The second thing I'm looking at is appreciation. Now, appreciation has gotten to be a bit of a tricky word. I used to, for years, I used to say, to say appreciation. And my appreciation, when we analyze properties, I only use no more than the annual inflation, right? So I would say 3 4% a year, you know, over time, perfect, right? Now, if I say appreciation and, and use the word inflation, people are like, oh my God, it's a lot. It's 7%, 8%, 9%. It's crazy. You know what? I'm tossing the inflate the current inflation out of the out of the of, out of our webinar. I'm just going to use minimal appreciation of an average three to four percent a year, right? So I factor that. I have the cash flow, I have the principal reduction, and I have the minimal appreciation of three to four percent a year. But that appreciation is compounding, right? It adds up year after year after year. And that means my the entire property <clears throat> is appreciating, which also means my down payment or the, 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 the amount I spent to buy the property appreciated even, even a higher rate, right? So between appreciation, even a small one, um, principal reduction and cash flow, I get what I call the total ROI. And the total ROI is very powerful, even if we have one property, especially if I wait multiple years. Multiple years, I would say five years is, is maybe uh, uh, good to wait, seven or more, even better. Real estate or this type of real estate loves time. Give it time, you get more, you know, usually what happened with this type of real estate, rents tend to kind of crawl up slowly. It may go like this a little bit. And values, they tend to go up over time, slowly or fast, you know, crazy years we, we're seeing. It may still go through, you know, up and downs along the way. And principal reduction being reduced more and more. So that means five years later, seven, 10, 15 years later, all of a sudden we get this asset that it's close to being paying it off. Maybe I already managed to pay it off, pay it off in 15 years. And I've only put 25, 30% down over time, right? So that's very, very powerful. It's an amazing tool for investors, right? But if we 
neglect to see all what the mechanism of, of universal property can provide us and we're focusing on the cash flow. And you know, sometimes when we buy rental properties remotely, we will run into challenges with the management, with the tenant, et cetera. It will happen. We tend to lose focus on the big picture. And we're like, oh my God, the house is sitting vacant for a month and my cash flow is eroded. And while we're thinking about it over seven years, like we're not even gonna remember those four, five, six months over time of vacancy that we have accumulated. Not in a in a straight you know period, just over time in between tenants, right? So that's something you have to remember not to focus on the cash flow, although it's kind of sitting in front of us and like dangling in front of us. It's all about the bigger picture, right? It's very powerful tool if we give it time, if we use leverage and we are patient and not losing, you know, not losing uh, uh, sight of the main aspect of what this amazing vehicle is giving us. All right. Property managers, right? Property managers. This has been an interesting week with uh, uh, property managers, you know, uh, affairs on our end. So we deal with property manager every week, right? Every week. Why? Because a lot of the property management issues that we have are coming from miscommunication or um, or not calibrating expectations. I would say it's expectations well. And the mis the, the nuts the it's not the miscommunication it's never perfect communication right it's never no matter how one side is trying the other side doesn't always hear what the one the first side want to say so let's start with property manager first of all they have a terrible reputation in our industry right first of all that's our starting point and unfortunately that's my default coming into this knowing. Property managers is, is a key ingredient. If you decide to use a property manager, it's a key ingredient. And the only way I can depend on property manager is if I create or set some proper checks and balances in working with property managers. So my first assumption is property managers are very challenging, right? Not necessarily crooks or bad people, it's just always gonna be challenging with property manager. Second thing is, if I, property management is challenging, how about I put a lot of time and effort, personally, Jessica and I, into making sure we're lining up good, reliable, trustworthy property manager now managers. Now, I have dealt with well over 70 property managers in my career, right? When I say dealt with more than 70, it doesn't, I don't count anything that was more than any property manager manages manage less than let's say five six properties seven properties I don't even count that as a, as you know uh, uh, as something you know that I don't count it it doesn't count right it's only when it gets to be around ten and more is what I really count as seventy so I'm not talking about all the other twenty thirty that I ran into over my career now when we tackle this we come in with our buying power we're coming with uh, my experience of working with property managers. And we go and we spend many good hours on just vetting, finding, interviewing, I call it more interrogating the right, you know, the property manager until we find the one that we think is matches all what we're looking for. So what I'm trying to say is that, first of all, assume it's a challenge. Assume it's a challenge, right? Second, if you understand it's a challenge, it's all about your mindset, how to control that, not control, but operate that environment, right? And what do I mean by that? A lot of people 
put so much um, weight or or give the property manager so much decision weight, you know, or decision ability, they neglect to remember that you're the owner and, and the property manager works for you. What do I mean is this? Let's take an example. Let's say the property manager contacts me and say, you know what? I think you should rent this property for $1,400, right? Now, my analysis, whether I purchased it just now or, may, or whether it's been my property for the past four years, doesn't matter. I will run my own analysis or ask the property manager to provide me with comps on the rent. And I will try to come up with a, an understanding. Is he recommending me $1,400 because it's true and correct? Or is he kind of calibrating my expectation a bit below in order to make it easier for himself and rent it quicker, right? There's no right or wrong answer here. There's just how am I handling this situation? In my On my end, I need to make sure he is giving me the best recommendation and not the recommendation that it's more comfortable to, for him. Now, it doesn't mean the market will pay 2,000 and he's suggesting 1,400, but it very likely would mean the market will pay 15 or even 1600 and that's where i need to tell the property manager hey let's put it at 1500 let's put it 1550 let's give it two weeks like this and see what happens right so i make i don't just go with what the property manager is telling me i i go with what i think is correct and i'm pushing the property manager on the rent another example with with property managers uh sometimes is when we have an existing tenant Many times the property manager say, you know, it's a good tenant. I would, you know, when, when the lease comes for renewal, the, you know, the property manager say, you know what? It's a really good tenant. They're taking really good pay of the, pay, care of the house. They're not late. I would not do anything on the rent. I would not change the rent. Let's just, you know, let's just sit, sit on it. Why? Why? Wait. Why are you telling me to do it, right? It's easier for you not to tackle this because, you know, whatever uh, whatever the result may be, wait one second. First of all, if this guy's been in my house for two years and he's paying 1400 and the market is 1700-1800, there is a range here. I can maybe consider increasing by $50, $100, maybe more. Maybe it's worthwhile for me to take the risk that the tenant will be upset with me raising the rate by $150 a month and they will leave and I'll get someone with 19, you know, nine, sorry, $1,800, right? What I'm trying to say again, it's about the narrative of not letting the property manager control the situation, but either asking the good questions or working with the property manager in order to maximize your yields. Now, I'm not saying the property manager has bad intentions, but I'm just saying many of us say, oh, the property manager said $1,400, I'll go with $1,400. Why? Just because it's comfortable for you? You know, if you're in real estate, you should, by, def by default, step out of your comfort zone. This is not the place for people who are looking for comfort zone. This is place for people saying, I see the benefit. It's not going to be comfortable, not going to be horribly uncomfortable, just a little bit uncomfortable. Step out of your comfort zone and make sure your property manager, which I nickname, I call my property manager, my employees, right? My business is a rental property. My business as an employee, one employee is called property manager, but he's my employee. I need to make sure he's he's doing what he's supposed to do. Like I would check on my employee and he's giving me his inputs 
but I have to check if these inputs are correct and not interpreted by something else, right? So can you trust property manager? Yes. Is it hard to find the good ones? You have to put yes. You got to put time and effort into vetting those people. It's not impossible. It's time consuming, right? A lot of reviews, uh, et cetera. You can find, have a conversation with them. If you join a network, like simply do it. We do a lot of the vetting, tons of the vetting ourselves. We bring a buying power with the property manager. We get better service. We, be, we get more activities from the property manager than your average uh, uh, client. We negotiate fees. So absolutely, you can do it on yourself. But if you're being a part of a network that simply do it, then a lot of that heavy lifting is not only going to done for you, it's going to done by some by, by a team is, that's doing it all the time and will very likely be able to help you when situation come up, right? So when I when we have a situation, you know, let me give you an example. All the property measures that we work with, Simply Do It, my company, is their biggest account. So all our clients are under the, in the management company, they're under the Simply Do It account. They get automatically better service, better responses, just by the nature of being part of their biggest account. And on the top of that, when I call all the property managers because I need to run something by them, normally they pick up the phone, the owner of the company, they pick up the phone, they say, yes, sir, yes, boss, what can I do for you? I'm not their boss. I'm not an owner of the company. But they're saying, yes, boss, because they, they know. I have one guy who always says, yes, boss, what's the problem today and how I can I help you solve it? That, that's just his mindset when I'm calling. And he knows I'm calling when they're normally when there are problems. So just do your due diligence. Find a, you know, a good company. It's, it's possible, right? And remember, if you do it as part of a larger network, it will benefit you financially, but also, you know, uh, um, you know service-wise, not just, you know, some fee reduction or discount. It's nice, but that's just part of it. You know, having better service or better responses or, or property manager that treats you with one property as, as, as if you're, you have 100 because you're part of that account, that's very, I think it's very valuable. We well, have a quick question about we have a quick question about property managers. Um, yeah. One of our attendees here wants to know what the recourse is when a tenant does not pay rent or utilities. If the tenant doesn't pay utilities or rent, normally that's that's between him and the utility company because that's that's who normally they sign up for the utility, right? So. Um, in most cases, utilities companies will go after the account owner, the tenant, right? Mm -hmm. I have seen a rare situation where the utility company came back and had, you know, something with the owner. And I don't remember exa exactly how it was sorted out, but that's just really, really a rare situation. If a tenant does not pay the rent, right? That was the other part of the question. Mm -hmm. Yes. There is uh, something we called eviction yes. right some states is easier some states is not easy at all um some property managers like to try and work it out some property managers are a little bit more strict with it i have found that most property managers in a situation that it's a possible eviction really listen to the owner so many times the owner is clueless which is too bad but if the owner is not clueless and some owners will say, hey, tell the tenant, we are starting eviction while we're trying to sort everything out with you on the on the payments. 
That's one way to go about it. Another owner may say, I thought eviction immediately, and I don't care if you talk or not talk to the tenant. And I would say, no, 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 you know, I understand that talk to the tenant, try to work it out, and then don't start the eviction just yet. See, three different scenarios, each one is going to be handled differently. Some of it is what the property manager's protocol and procedures are, but a lot of it has to do with what the owner is pushing for or advocating for. Okay. If that's not clear, we can also circle back to those uh, questions, uh, you know, to that question at the end. Okay. Um, all right. One of the most common, going back to the question number four, right? Maybe I should do a countdown, uh, count up. Um, what if the market crashes, right? So I love that uh, question because that's a very popular question these days. So first of all, a quick side note, Jessica, did we send out the email with the uh, interpretation of the video of the analyst? Not yet. Not yet. No. So we will be I sending think it that tomorrow. Everybody here, you know, has registered and will receive an email from us by an analyst, a real estate analyst that he has good record track record of predicting trends in yep. the economy. And we took an hour, in my mind, really good video and explanation. And if you have the capacity, the patient, the attention to watch it, um, you know, I think it will contribute to you a lot. But yep. we, I know that a lot of people like, you know, it's hard to watch an analyst for an hour. So we just need like, uh, we took the main points. We have like, I don't know, eight, nine points that we, I think that the main essence of what he said, and we're going to send you an email and it has those main points that we think that are the, the key ones from his, an hour of lecture. And then if you want to watch it, by all means, uh, go ahead and watch it. I enjoyed it's it. Very, very, it's very actually much. very interesting. Yeah. For me, it was like, yeah. uh, for me, it was like, uh, you know, like we're watching a good, a good, uh, uh, episode in the real estate world. Yeah. Uh, but going back to the question about crashes. So let me start by saying I am a graduate or a survivor of the crash of 2008, right? It's always a, you know, a challenge, which one is it or both. I, in 2008, I had multiple properties myself. I had multiple investors I've worked with and I flew straight into the crash um, you know, I was frontline, right? Uh, with everything that, that comes with being in the crash of 2008, I am scarred financially, emotionally, you know, absolutely. But the crash of 2008 was my, I want to say even my PhD in real estate investing, right? It taught me a lot about real estate. It made me go back to my system. And I started Instead of saying I'm surviving it, that's why I'm saying I'm a graduate, I dove in back and I kind of rebuilt my company um, from scratch in a way that new processes, better processes, better systems, more details, more analytics. I look at the Danny before the crash of 2008 and I look at that guy and say, it was okay, but uh, somewhat of an, I don't want to say amateur, but not even close to where Danny or simply do it is today with how, how we go about investing in the decision-making process. So that's just kind of generally speaking, more specifically, or a few of the things that kind of taught me out of the crash of 2008 is I told myself one of my biggest lessons learned after the crash of 2008 was 
It's not about if the market crashes. I assume in a 10, 15 years of holding a piece of property, it will crash. It, may, it doesn't, have, doesn't mean it has to be a 2008 crash all over again, but the market statistically every 10 years or so, we have some sort of a, a downturn, right? So I'm assuming my basic assumption, a market or you know a real estate market will go into a downturn, right? As we are seeing right now, we may are starting a recession, not a recession. We're definitely seeing a cool off. I think it's more of a correction, but definitely things cooling off relatively to the past, not just two years, but six, seven years or so. So first assumption, a downturn, a downturn will happen, okay? Why am I saying it? If I'm assuming a downturn is going to happen, how about I make decisions right now knowing that's going to happen? And a lot of the decisions we are making are based on the fact that I want to choose metros, properties, areas that have greater chances on surviving the next downturn, right? So a lot of the decisions about where to buy, what to buy, how to buy, et cetera, are starting, the starting point for those decisions is, is this property, is this metro, has good chances of surviving the next downturn, right? So right there, I'm, I'm, I'm embracing it. I'm not resisting it. I'm not intimidated by it. So that's for, that, a very, very important point. The other two points that are kind of coming out of this as well is I will, I think that you could, you will always hear me say, and I keep saying it again and again and again. I hope it kind of, you know, kind of drills down to everybody. I think that there's two things you can, two very common sense things you can do to make sure you're doing a right investment or correct investment. One, buy quality, right? Now, buying quality is maybe very, uh, uh, what is quality, right? It's, quality is a very uh, kind of, uh, a vague term when it comes to real estate. Well, let me tell you that the, one of the best ways to define quality is actually, I think when I say don't buy a piece of crap, of crap is a clearer way to know what's quality and what's not quality. So when I buy a nice house, three bedrooms, two bedrooms, two baths, whatever, in a suburb of Nashville or, or Birmingham, Alabama, right? Um, in, in, a, in a good schools area, and maybe it's a two, it's maybe it's a 20 years old, 30 years old, five years old house. That's already kind of a quality kind of property versus a house in a tough neighborhood or not so good schools, you know, with a lower end people that, that having a hard time to pay the rent. I'm not saying you cannot make money there, but this, those, some areas are going to be more challenging during a downturn versus the more, let's say, uh, uh, middle-class kind of area. So one thing is buying quality, right? Second thing is long-term, long-term, quality, long-term, right? Take those two, remember those two things, because here's what's going to happen when you buy quality long-term. When you buy quality, we already, I think, understand what that means. When you hold it long-term, and when I say long-term, let's just call it at least seven years, but ideally 10 or more, right? So let's say we hold it for 10 years. And based on my assumption, in those 10 years or so, we're going to have at least one downturn, right? But in 10 years, as we have seen in this country again and again and again for probably 60, 70 years or more, the real estate tends to go up and down. You know, of course, we had a big crash, but 
even with a big crash, it tends to go up and down and over time go up, right? Over time, at least keep up with inflation. Actually, it's keeping up with, it's more than keeping up with inflation, normal inflation. But you know what? Let's just stick with the inflation rate, the normal three, four percent. That is fine. That's enough. We don't need more than that. I mean, I want more than that, but we don't have to have more than that to be successful. But the long term is an inherently way to hedge against downturn, right? Let me tell you a story to emphasize it, you know, uh, in the best possible way. I bought a house in Orlando in 2005, September 2005. That house I bought for 188,000 and during 2009 at the bottom from 188 it was worth, right, according to Zillow, 84,500. So that means less than a half. So the value of the property dropped by more than a half. Was that a pleasant experience? Heck no, not at all. But in my mind, I told myself, relax, quality long-term, right? Let's ride it out. This house today, yeah, 320, 350, depends on which day of, uh, of, which day of Zillow we are waking up. But somewhere between... 300 to 350. Let's just say, you know, uh, um, assume that, right? I'm not even selling, so it doesn't really matter. So I told myself when that 84, I have it, you know, uh, um, um, the image, I have the image of Zillow here in my mind. I remember 84, 500. I told myself, chill out, shut up, Danny, write it out. Exactly those words. And I did, right? By the way, during those times, rent, Rents went up, vacancy went down. So cash flow, I, I was better. But the feeling of the value was not, right? I was patient. I told all my clients at the time that were patient, stick it out, relax, don't do anything. And truly, those who held those properties did very well over time. And those who were nervous and sold, not because something happened in their life that they had to go to, a, to maybe to a foreclosure or something of that sort, uh, um, but just got nervous and dropped the property and ran, those are the ones who actually accumulated the losses. And I think many of them, some of them are um, feel sorry for that. So assume there is a crash, factor decisions into that, not a crash, but a downturn. And if you're doing long-term and quality, there's a very good chance you're right there just by long-term and quality hedging against those downturns even if the house loses value over time, right? Even if that happens. So um, how do you make sure you're buying a good property? I wanna start by putting this burden on you. What I like to tell my clients when we start working together is tell me what a good property looks like for you. At least the minimum threshold, right? Meaning, if I show, if you tell me the criteria you you have for a good property, and we see a property that meet those criteria, it's already a good start, right? Anything we do better from meeting your criteria or exceeding, it's more than just an okay property. It's a great property, right? In our analysis Excel, we have a little box. I call it the little cheat sheet. I let you know the clients set up their own criteria, and then every property. You know, I, I call it the baseline. This is what you're seeing right now with the purplish background, my criteria. And I tell them, 
any property that meets or exceeds this those criteria, we're, we're, it's already something we should consider. Anything that does not, maybe move on, right? So that means I tell them and I tell you, do the same on your end. Take, you know, take the take this table, spend five minutes tonight, tomorrow morning. I don't know when exactly, instead of, you know, instead of using this for five minutes, you know, maybe we need to do an app with that and maybe it'll be easier. Just spend five minutes and ask yourself, what is a good property for you? Why am I saying for you? How can I tell what's a good property? Why would you take my set of you know qualities for properties or my belief system and use it if you don't agree with it or don't think this way so use your common sense decide what the good property looks like set those criteria for yourself right it's a it's a quick simple short you know exercise but once you have that exercise and you start getting properties from wherever you're getting them you can always say how is this you know siding with the with my criteria is it matching or not? So that will give you what you would call a, you know, a good a property for you, and it will help you decide if it's good for you, not good, or even better. Now, a little side note, if you use this little cheat sheet of a table, what I like, you know, when we, in, in, in our Excel, every time the, the criteria of my criteria and the property are okay match or better it it changes where you see pass fail to sufficient or insufficient right so you may get insufficient but i want you to understand that when i look at the insufficient what you're seeing here is fail right there's two fail points then you have to make some judgment call right the judgment call is well my criteria is 1300 but this house is 1200 am i going to kill the deal on 1200 probably not but just kind of something to to kind of Think about, then again, with the rent purchase price ratio, my criteria is 0.85, but this property is generating 0.75. Is it a deal breaker or not? You're gonna make that determination, maybe not. But if I see multiple fail, red, you know, like red, red dots, and even if they're close to being okay, maybe if I see three or more, I should consider altogether moving on to the next one. So. You need to define what you think is a good property and then match or check your criteria, your baseline with every property to see if it's a good fit and take it from there. Move on to another property, maybe make a judgment call, or if it exceeds, hey, by all means, that should tell you, I should, I should consider putting an offer on this property. Okay, how to handle and solve ongoing issues with the house and the tenant. It all comes down, I think it's a follow-up on the question number three with the property managers. If you are proactive, property manager, the best way to be involved with property manager is not, you know, not put it on an autopilot and forget about the property, is to be proactive. I call it supervisor property manager and not, um, you know, and not, uh, um, you know, um, and not, not micromanage or completely autopilot, right? If you are involved, then you can talk to the property manager, so, you know, see what the situation is, you know, uh, if you're working with a property manager, if you're not working with a property manager, there are obviously 
bigger pocket, different Facebook groups that you can run your situation and get some advice. My clients, we tell them, you're always welcome to call us. Tell us what's going on. We will help you. The fact that you purchased a property with us three years ago, and I have not heard from you for three years, and now there is something complicated or something simple, call us. Let us try and help. Guess what? The property managers, when we call, they pick up the phone and answer and listen to what we, you know, try to to uh, to make sure they're doing right. So we provide a layer of consultation, knowledge, experience, buying power to our clients. If you don't have a resource like us, maybe you do. Maybe you can be part of a real estate club or real estate group or some some other uh, network that will provide you with that support during the rental phase, but you can also talk to the property manager, challenge them. Is there another way to solve the problem? Can we get another bid? Um, what would you do if this was your house? All those questions will generate some thinking with the property manager and they may come up and, and say, you know what? Now that you're asking, let's get another bid. You know what? Let's go, uh, let me talk to the head of the company. He may have some ideas here. Those are the things that will benefit you instead of just saying, oh, they're telling me I need to fix it. It costs $1,500. I'm not sure what to do. I'm just going to spend $1,500. It may be the right answer, but sometimes to make sure you're comfortable with $1,500 with the situation, you want to explore other options as well. The, it all comes down to be, remember, this is your property. It's not the property manager's property. And it's in your best interest to make sure the property manager is doing great job or good job for you, right? So that's kind of the, the gist of this, this point. Um, I'm nervous about investing in a property I cannot visit regularly. How do remote investors handle this? Great question. I think this part is very psychological because a lot of investors are intimidated by going remotely where they cannot see what's going on and they feel it will jeopardize their control or their ability to know what's going on. So how do you do that? So first of all, first of all, I always tell my clients, fly, go out, see at least once, or maybe at least when you're buying a property, right? That's always been my suggestion. You're going to see the property or properties. You're going to see the market, meet the team. You're going to be more comfortable with what you're buying area-wise, etc. Going out to visit the metro is not going to teach you how a certain metro operates. It's going to give you some confidence. It's going to give you some comfort that you're, what you're buying, where you're buying, who are the people, it will give you some ease, right? It's not going to solve the problem, but it's going to give you a lot of ease, actually. So that's always been my recommendation. However, my clients are just showing me, although what I'm suggesting, how they're behaving, right? Bef up until COVID, 85% of our clients would buy sight unseen and would never see their properties. And since COVID, probably 95% are buying sight unseen <clears throat> and 5% will go once or twice or, or maybe, uh, you know, throughout the, the, uh, the, um, the holding period or the buying period. So that means on our end, we found 
or we understand that we need to provide more transparency, more checks and balances, more, a little bit more than just your traditional uh, uh, buyer, just to compensate for the remote aspect of it. <clears throat> but I want to tackle it from, from a different direction for a second. Let's say this, for, this point it really intimidates you and you're like, I cannot buy a property that, that is far from me. I have to be able to go see, check, whatever. Okay, I get it. First of all, who says you have to buy remotely, right? If it's not, if it's make you uncomfortable or you think you're losing control because you have a, a control freak or OCD or whatever, maybe this is not the right avenue for you remotely. But a lot of us, we live in an expensive real estate markets. Buying locally means a lot of money as a down payment, and maybe even, and maybe we don't hit, don't have that much. Um, and even if we do, who says you want to put it on one piece of property or maybe two? Um, and also, the cash flow in some of those expensive markets is going to be terrible. So you got to ask yourself, what am I going to do? Am I going to am I going to be lo buying locally because I am not willing to consider out of state? Or can I consider out of state going there, visiting, checking? Yeah, make, make a trip out of it. It's okay. It's actually, it's also uh, um, uh, tax deductible. So you make a trip out of it. You learn, you become more knowledgeable. It will advance you as an investor. You can also join Simply Do It because we have systems and processes and teams. And I, I think you already kind of get the gist of it through my, my, my answers, but we just know most of our clients do not, you know, go out. They tell us we're not going to buy, you know, go out. So that we try to make sure we compensate for those things. It's not perfect, guys. If I'm, if it sounds like simply do it is the best thing on earth, which I think it is, you know, it's not perfect, but it works well. We have a lot of those. We put a lot of time and attention to those checks and balances and system and processes. So anybody can, can, can kind of use leverage or utilize what the tracks that we laid so you could benefit. So you can join a network, like simply do it, simply do it, or like simply do it, and that will benefit you. We're having support system, having checks and balances, having people to talk to when you are running into problem, maybe alleviate a little bit, you know, the, the concern of buying remotely sight unseen. Again, go and see, but if you don't want to go and see, you have another a party that looks, you know, that knowledgeable, that helps you make those decisions about a, a remote property. All those things are doable. It's just a matter of you finding the right formula, the right methodology for your level of comfort, right? Um, I have a, a client. I had a client. Uh, he's still alive. He's just no longer a client because he bought a house September of 2019. I believe September of 2019. This guy is such a nice guy, right? Polite, pleasant to speak with, knowledgeable, intelligent. Like the guy is super sweet. He, <coughs> he buys the house outside of Dallas in Frawny, Frawny, Texas, September 2019. Very quickly, he learns that the tenant has two dogs and for some reason he missed that in the communication again communication and he thinks or believes one of the dogs is a kind of riskier breed and he goes 
nuts, not nuts, you know, like he's like, okay, I got to do this something. He insists that the tenant takes on a, a, a policy that covers the dog. He finds an expensive policy that covers the dogs. The guy is not playing around. He's like, he's, like, he's so fearful for no good reason. But in his mind, in his mind, he is nervous. And he's calling me every two weeks and says, Danny, I, I don't know what to do. You got to talk to me and tell me, I'm, uh, tell me I'm wrong. Tell me it's all in my mind. And a conversation after conversation, almost every two weeks, I tell him, listen, there's nothing wrong. It's a good property, a good location. The tenant is okay. Yes, there are dogs, but it's, it's okay. It's not, un it's not unheard of. And we have insurance, so you should be good. And okay, thank you, thank you. Two weeks, three weeks later, again, similar conversation. And then after two months, he says, listen, I am not sleeping well. I'm losing sleep. The quality of my life since I became an owner is not good. And I say, all right, this was, I, I tell him, listen, this is not good, right? How about this is almost the holidays. Let's take the holidays, think about it. Tell me what you want to do. I will do whatever whatever uh, uh, I can, but I want to tell you that if you decide to sell so quickly, very likely you're going to lose a little bit of money, not a lot, but you know maybe five thousand dollars or so you're going to lose because with all the expenses, that, he says, "Listen, I don't care. I don't care. I can. I'm I'm ready to lose more. I'm losing my sanity here." Um, and he decides to sell the house. We are able to find him another investor and kind of minimize his loss. The guy's like, okay, I'm done. This is not for me. He did not suspect that's going to be the case for him at all. Uh, by the way, again, I want to emphasize, there's nothing happened. Not with the dogs, not with the tenant, not with the house. Nothing. He got nervous. He got uneasy. I think I had only one, probably two such situations in my career that people got nervous and they said, that's not for me. And he sold the house. He said, thank you for all the help. I appreciate it. Not, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm, it's, this is not a good avenue for me. So if you're that, if you know you're going to be that, don't do it, right? Don't call me nervously. I don't want to be your therapy. I want to be your investment advisor. But if you are willing, ask yourself, what needs to happen in order for me to be comfortable with buying remotely? Let me give you another, another example. About 10 years ago, <laughs> 10 years ago, I got a, a, um, a, one of my investors was buying his first property again in Fort Worth area, Texas. And this guy got nervous about the purchase. And, he's, and after, I think after he closed or during the inspection period, he said, you know what, Danny, I was so nervous about the situation. What I have done is I actually, instead of going there, the guy lives in the, used to live in the Bay Area, now he lives in the LA area. Instead of going out there, um, I decided to purchase, to buy two inspections from two different inspectors, right? So I, have, I did two inspections on the property from two separate inspectors because I felt that by doing two, I'm kind of covering the old bases and that he found a solution. At first, I thought, this guy is crazy because I've never seen that. And then like, wait, wait, wait. He had a problem. He had a challenge. He found a solution. And, and for him, it's even cheaper than flying out there. So that makes sense to him. And he was comfortable proceeding with the transaction. You know what? Amazing. 
right? He was challenged, found a solution that, you know, made it comfortable for him, and he proceeded with buying the property. It happened once. I never, I don't remember anyone else doing it since or before. Great idea, right? I'll take it. Here's a problem. Here's a solution. Works, and a cheap one. So uh, that's what I'm trying to say. There are options. There are solutions. Sometimes a lot of what we do with our clients is when they present a fear, a concern, uh, something along those lines, we try to show them, hey, here's how we can compensate. Here's how, you know, you can, you know, we, we can check, we can verify, we can make sure a lot of the, a lot of what we do, our role is to kind of try to put our clients at ease. There's a concern you have, whether I think it's a genuine concern or not, it's, it's not the point. This is a concern for you. Let me suggest ways how you can mitigate, how you find a solution, because I know from experience it's all about putting clients at ease. Then they can invest comfortably. If they're not, if they're nervous, it's just not going to go well. Um, this needs to be fully passive. I don't have time and attention to be managing and dealing, but I want to invest. How do I maneuver this? Again, common question. All of them. All right. Let's split the time aspect into two main components purchasing and everything after right owning and after when i purchase properties there's a more of a const you know more time is more can i need to put the time and effort to make decision yes to put an offer on this property not put an offer on this property etc right so that may have a more of a more time consuming in the evening when i'm done with work and whatever and family i need to spend an hour or two you know once or twice a week until I find the property and then submit an offer and, and, and put some time into it after that. If you don't have that time, yes, it's gonna be challenging, right? We do with some of our clients, if they're comfortable and they're willing to outsource that decision to us, we do it. We say, okay, we found you the property, maybe just spend two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes to make sure it's okay and we can proceed. If you wanna do that, most of our clients, they want to be involved, not you know, involved enough to make those decisions, verify, which we encourage and help do. Sometimes someone says, I have almost no time. If I don't outsource that decision to you and you just tell me which one to buy and I'll we'll take a look and I'll, I'll make sure it's fine, then um, it's not going to happen. So remember that there is time-consuming commitment there. There's time commitment there. Some investor thinks think that when we buy a rental property, it's um, it's passive income. It is not, right? It is just not a passive income. Is it full work? Probably not, not in our world. Does it require some time and attention on your behalf, on the ongoing, when you're in the management? Absolutely. Make sure they list, they list the house as they said, right? Make sure the vendor that they said that they will coordinate with the tenant has been there. Make sure that the work has been done. Oh, those are the, you know, what's going on. Make decision. Property manager calls you. He needs you to approve an expense. If you wait for three weeks to approve, he's not going to proceed, right? So make sure you spend a few minutes reviewing, asking questions, approving. It's going to cost you per property, probably about an hour a month, depending on the type of property you're doing, maybe half an hour a month, maybe two hours a month, depending on the type of property. Um, but normally we see about an, on average about an hour a month per property 
in order to verify, supervise, check on things, just to make sure everything goes according to the plan, right? That you need that time and attention to make sure the the property manager, guess what? There are also people didn't forget, neglect, missed something, fell through the cross. That's it. That's the business of supervising property managers. That You don't have to like it. It's just part of this system. But if you understand it and accept it, then you will follow through with that and you will check on the property manager. It does take a little bit of time. So it is difficult, not difficult. It could be very difficult for someone who is super busy. It could be a little bit less you know, in, uh, intense or time requirement when you use a property manager. And also, again, if you're part of Simply Do It, we try to find ways how to remind you to do things, how to help you with situation that you're feeling a little bit kind of um, lost or not sure what to do with a property manager, but it still requires your time and attention to check, to follow up with those things. That's 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 why I don't call it passive income. It's not super time consuming, but it does require some time and attention on your behalf. Will my investor property rent after I close? Wow. All right. Simple answer is no guarantee, right? Realistic answer is they do, right? Is it going to be renting the day after closing? Probably not, right? Normally, when we're not in the winter, in the type of communities we are investing in, it takes about a month to a month and a half to rent after closing, right? Can it take two months? Yes. Three months? Yes. Four months? Yes. Right? When we go beyond two months on our end, for us, it's a little bit of a red flag. We're trying to jump in and see what's going on. Uh, we find that many times the reason it's not renting is because a mistake has been done many times by the owner. For example, not allowing pets, right? Pets are, in our category of properties, pets are 60% of the of the tenants, right? So not allowing pets, you're just, you know, eliminated 60% of the market. Um, we have had situation where the owner was supposed to send maybe a few thousand dollars to the property manager so they can start the work on the property, what we call the make ready, right? To freshen it up before, you know, before between the closing and the and the leasing, right? Maybe you need to paint it, maybe you need to fix new things. Eh, typical. And they just didn't send it. Why? Yeah, life. It took them three weeks, four weeks, a month and a half to send those funds. And meanwhile, the property is sitting there. Okay. The property major. I had a situation where I called the property manager. I was all agitated. It's like, what's going on? What are you doing? I said, Danny, relax. Listen, I've been chasing this guy for a month and a half. Multiple emails, multiple calls. He either is not responding or says he'll take care of it. We need to, we need to spend, you know, we need to make the house ready for renting. He's holding the funds. I can't move forward. I said, done. I called the guy. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. It's like, don't sorry, but you know, it's your property. I, I I feel bad. And then we got it sorted out quickly. So those are the type of things that many times it's up to the owner and the owner is not always knowledgeable about yes or no, or doesn't know to ask the question. They just come with certain you know decision beforehand, which is not always a good one. And they don't understand that it, it hurts them. And I have been, I have seen situations where the property managers 
tell tells the owner, I don't recommend you do that. That will hurt your leasing, your leasing ability, the quickness, etc. Um, second thing that that can happen, you know, maybe in the winter it takes a little bit longer, or even in the summer it takes a little bit longer. Then we have to be a little bit more on the on kind of check on the activity. Have we had a lot of activity or no activity or how much activity, meaning people asking and having showings. Most property managers, if not all, can track that. And maybe we need to adjust the price or something else with the property. Maybe someone came and said, your house is, you know, something is off with the tree at the front and that prevents, you know, renters. And uh, maybe the, we thought we can rent it for 1800 And the market is telling us that we can rent it for... 1650. So we have to be a little bit, you know, kind of on the top of things to make sure we make decisions, right? When we estimate rents, when we analyze the property before buying it, it's an estimate, right? It's not an exact science. By the time we put a house on the market, either there could have been a little bit of shifting in pricing, there could have been a shifting in seasonality. And also, if nothing of that happened, Right, it could be that the market is thinking different than us, so we have to adjust and be ready for it. I will tell you that no, once a oh, sorry, I would say in our network of simply do it of hundreds, many hundreds of properties in multiple markets, we will get two to three properties a year that will take anywhere from three to four months to rent. It will happen, right? We have two of them right now. Actually, they're not even two months yet; they're just about. They're sorry. They're about two months at the moment, and I think one of them has a, an application. Right? It will happen. Do we get two to three, four clients a year that will last more than two months? Maybe two to three months. Absolutely, it will happen. I know it's horrible when it's yours, but it will happen. Most of them do not take that long, and if they do, almost always there's a reason why it's taking that long. Right? And that's when many times we step in and try to understand. What can we do? Ask the questions, suggest suggestion. Reducing the price is part of it. It's not always the you know the only thing. So absolutely, um, part of making sure where we buy is to make sure we can we know it's possible to rent there. If we know an area is difficult or going through some softness or a community saturated, we are staying away from those communities to begin with. But as long as we no, this area should not be problematic. You know, we uh, tend to uh, list those properties with normal times. I wouldn't. I don't want to say quickly that although that happens, normal times. All right, guys, we're getting down to the last question, right? From from here, how do I get started? So I want to tell you a little bit, a short story about this question because about three years ago or four years ago, I had a marketing consultant who came to me and said, I want you to analyze all the questions you get in your intake. We have intake, everybody completes before they meet with us and tell me what are the top asked questions. And when I, when we did this exercise, according to the marketing consultant, the number one asked questions by far was how do I get started? Which I was very surprised. I thought like it's very obvious how to get started, but it shows me, you know, um, uh, that I was wrong about it. So I said, okay, if this is the uh, the main questions, let's tackle this one. 
How do I get started? Well, it really depends a little bit where you are in the process. If you are really the beginning of just thinking about it, I call it the sponged area. Take your time to listen to webinars about, I don't know, mobile home investing or self-storage um, uh, self investing, and maybe about flipping and maybe about notes. And maybe you listen to a guy with an accent who talks about remote residential investing, whatever. Take the time to kind of take it all in. You got to put the time on your mental schedule, calendar, and say, that's it, enough. There is enough information out there to that you can go on and on and on and keep studying and not executing, right? Every time you hear a speaker, the topic, the speaker is good, it sounds exciting, and you decide you want to pursue that until you hear the next speaker and so on and so forth. So how about you take some time to observe, find your niche. How do you find your niche? It's whatever speaks to you in terms of budget, time consume, the timing requires, the um, the comfort zone you have, your some beliefs in system, your common sense, your experience, whatever. Normally, we have in, we have enough experience going through life to know which one of the different investment avenues is more we are more we feel more comfortable about, and this put the others aside and focus at least for now on this one, right? So stop being a sponge. Start doing, you know you know, executing or moving towards execution in the strategy you determine it's most suitable to you right now based on all those personal values. Now go back to the criteria I just showed you. Let's scroll back to it if you're not sure. And then set them up. Take five minutes and set it up. Qualify to yourself what would consider a good investment property. And that will be your guide. And then start executing and if you got to this point and you're still confused or not sure what to do guess what get in touch with us we're gonna help you that's what we do every day we speak with clients potential clients potential investors we take the time to talk with you and understand what's your what's your concerns and fears and unknowns and we try to kind of create some understanding and clarity and maybe some direction and you may find that we are a good fit for you or then you are a good fit for us and you may find that actually this is not a good avenue for you or the you know the most suitable avenue and that's okay too so if you're not sure um how about to execute and you heard everything i spoke and maybe listen to other seminars or webinars that i've done you are most welcome to sign up and meet either with jessica or with me and we will spend probably 30 to 45 minutes at no cost. And we're going to take this investing thing from a general idea to a one-on-one -on -one intimate conversation with you based on your concerns, your fears, your questions, right? That's what we are trying to accomplish in, the, in those, we call it strategy session. It's going to bring it down to your level of individual who wants to invest and have some questions, many questions, etc we can do it in person if you're in orange county by phone zoom whatever is suitable for you the only thing we ask is you take three to four minutes and complete our intake form the intake form which is you know the um the link is at the bottom um it's simply do it.net forward slash intake 
It's not asking for any personal information or social security or, or money or credit card, anything. It's just kind of a few questions that help us get ready to the conversation with you, give us a little bit more kind of, um, you know, asking you a few questions that will help you also get ready for the for the, the call. And once you complete it, we set up a time, we talk, and then we decide if this is a good fit. My promise to you, no sales pitch whatsoever in the conversation. No boot camps. We don't have any. No other seminars for a fee. No books and tapes. A pure conversation about investing and exploring if this is a good fit. That's it. Simple as that. We hold those conversations, you know, every week. Um, so if you want to do that, go to the intake or get in touch with us. We can always direct it to the intake. I do want to give you um, one gift and one uh, suggestion. If you want to read my simple book about remote investing, it's, I don't know, maybe 30 pages long or so. It's not a sales pitch. Again, it's kind of an outline you know, methodical outline, how to go about it, suggestion, tips, ideas. You're most welcome to download the ebook um, on simplydoit.net forward slash ebook. I also want to mention that we have uh, a YouTube channel with hundreds of videos. Uh, probably this will go there as well. We have a podcast with hundreds of episodes all about investing, of course, and I try when I speak in our events, whatever media source I'm using is to teach, to educate, to explain, to be very simple about it, to be very straightforward about it. That's always been my style. Um, so I believe that if we provide value to our, to people who consume information for us, they will probably end up wanting to explore the possibility of working together. Simple as that. Here's our contact information. Um, you're most welcome to contact us about, you know, a strategy session, about something else. Uh, you can check different properties we consider on reistar.com. I think that that's it for now. Oh, yeah, of course, we have the, uh, the December 19th, Monday, December 19th webinar about risks. We're going to talk about that. You're most welcome to register if you have not done so already. Do we have questions or am I like, uh, oh, actually only an hour and uh, 10, 15 minutes. I'm what? How did that happen? Yeah. Usually an hour and a half. So uh, yeah, so I've uh, allowed everybody to unmute themselves if they have any last minute questions. Um, is there anyone that's got something on their mind that they want to bring up to the group? So the one guy that asked me specifically is this is also relevant for Canada or only U.S. Mm -hmm. I will just say it's U.S. real estate, but we have Canadians who invest in U.S. real estate. Um, so that's generally speaking, answering your question is U.S. real estate. But if you actually listen to the questions and the answers that I've talked about and covered, they are not geographically related just to uh to the us right property manager if you work with property manager in canada without experiencing canadian property manager i will assume it's a similar breed it's not a completely different creature so a lot of my questions are 
answers are also related wherever your real estate is, right? But the core of our activity is US-based properties. Does anyone have anything else that they wanted to bring up or any leftover questions that weren't in the chat? Perfect. All right. All right. I think so, that's good. We held everybody for quite a long time. Yeah. Thank you for those who survive all the way to the end. Thank you for uh, uh, Jessica for putting it together. Yeah. Thanks everybody uh, for your time to join us. Have a terrific okay. rest of your night. See you soon, hopefully on the 19th. Thank you. Bye-bye, yep. everyone. Thanks. Bye.